Hello, everybody. This is the Stronghold Podcast, episode 13. I'm here with Dr. Alan Chung. Thank you very much. How are you, glad man? To, I'm glad to be here. Thanks very much for the invite. Thank you so much for doing this. So, yeah, you're welcome. Uh, Alan is a doctor. What, what is your like sort of specialty? I'm an orthopedic surgeon, mm -hmm. so I'm trained in fixing broken bones, fixing sports injuries, replacing joints, you know, pretty much that sort of thing. So, but I also have a background in sports medicine and ringside medicine as well. So ringside medicine, so that's mm. like a specific, there's a specific field, path you can go down for that? Um, it, it's mainly for people who have a sports medicine or an acute background like emergency medicine or orthopedics. But there's a certification uh, run by the American College of Sports Medicine, which um, I've taken and I'm a member of mm. the American uh, Ringside Physicians Association also. See, that's what I knew I had to get you on the podcast because your take on this whole this whole thing would be so interesting to find because you train. You were telling me earlier you're a blue belt in jiu-jitsu. You've mm -hmm. been training yeah. for several years. You told me you trained with Ron when stick fighting 10 years ago <laughs> or something like that, right? Back in the day. Shout yeah. out to you, Ron. <laughs> yeah. And Ron Hi, for Ron. the hookup as well. <laughs> so you've been a martial artist for some time now. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm, I'm particularly good, but I, um, I enjoy it. And it helps uh, with my perspective with uh, being a ringside doctor as well. And um, it was actually Ron, Ron Ong, who, who got me into the whole ringside thing as well. Basically, oh, really? he said about two or three years ago, he said, look, this, they're looking for someone to cover some amateur events. So I think it was a KBX event. And, mm. and so I said, okay, you know, I'm, I'm free that, that evening. I'm interested to see what's going on. And it all went from there. So, uh, yeah. Uncle all Ron. Down to Ron. All down to Ron. Yeah. Uncle Ron making the connections. <laughs> So you do some ringside physician work for one. You were also doing it for the most recent Sea Games, right? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm a, in Singapore. I help cover most of the events for one championship. Um, I'm also the wrestling uh, team doctor, uh, so I was out there to support them, and I also managed to support the uh, jiu-jitsu uh, federation as well when I was out there. So, you know, it's a uh, first time that jiu-jitsu was uh, an event in the SEA Games, so it's a, a big deal. Which, thank God, they've yeah. finally done that. I mean, yeah. th that should have been done ages ago. And the Singapore jiu-jitsu team, shout out to them. Maybe we just go into the SEA Games stuff Yeah, yeah, first. sure, yeah, yeah. Because you were just there. Yeah. Did you, uh, do you do the Sambo as well, the, the yeah. Sambo? That happened um, earlier on. In, so I, I didn't really have time to... That was the week previously, but uh, they did extremely well. They, yeah. got, they got a gold and several medals as well. Yeah, Nasri, shout out to yeah, you, gold that's medal. Right, yeah, and um, yeah, that's I think that's the inaugural Sambo event. And uh, same thing, which is yeah, really, yeah, exactly. it's basically amateur. For the listeners that mm. don't know, Sambo is yeah. basically amateur MMA. Mm, exactly, I mean, Russian they, yeah, MMA. They can strike yeah. on the feet. They have yeah. the shin pads. They have the gloves. Yeah, and you're wearing a jacket. Yeah. Which is particularly cool because you get this blend of the striking with the grappling, but then you can throw people on their head <laughs> still because you get that collar grip, man, that collar and sleeve grip. You yeah. send people flying. So it's this hybrid MMA, gi, jiu-jitsu thing. It's mm. really fascinating to watch because yeah. you get those judo throws in there mm. as well and mm -hmm. you can still choke with the gi and everything. Yeah, absolutely. So they did fantastically well. And um, the, rest, the uh, wrestling team did amazingly well as well. I mean, I think... They're Maddie, up again. Madeline got a, got a medal. I saw uh, that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, shout out to so, Maddie. Yeah, and uh, so, <clears throat> I mean, wrestling is actually surprisingly big in the region, not just Southeast Asia, but you know, you've got it's actually really big in Vietnam. You know, it's one of their national sports, and then you've got other nations who have a much larger population. So, I think for our athletes who are sort of have to hold down a full time job, a lot of them are, in, are educators. Yeah. 
you know they don't have sponsorship they may get you know at best you know, limited funding to be up against people who just can practice full-time go on yeah. camps to you know who go on camps to russia for several months and basically are very very well funded is it's a huge achievement so i'm very proud of them and proud to represent them medically yeah, yeah. that's awesome yeah. wrestling was my first discipline yeah mm. so i have a deep deep spot in my yeah. heart for for wrestling in particular yeah. and seeing Especially, I mean, you have countries like Kazakhstan, right? Isn't that where they did it previously, the, the most recent one? Yeah, I think for the Asian Games next year, they're going to be, it's going to have a lot more competition because you have all the Eastern Bloc countries and yeah. maybe, you know, maybe even more. They're born wrestling, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. So the, the, the skill, the competition level just goes right up. But even the Sea Games, it's, it's tough. So they did really well. Well, there's no question that martial arts yeah. in Singapore is on the rise. Yeah, absolutely. And that's yeah. across all disciplines. Mm. I don't care if it's Muay Thai, if it's Jiu-Jitsu, if mm. it's Sambo, if it's yeah. Gi, Gi, No Gi, whatever your yeah. thing is. I mean, even like the boxing that they got at Juggernaut. I mean, they got some really good boxers there, mm. like all the way across the board. Yeah. And this has only been a phenomenon that's really blown up in the last 10 years. I mean, yeah. seven or eight years. I was just telling you earlier, when I started at Evolve, I was a purple belt. Mm. And man, there were... There were just white and blue belts. Yeah. And then now if you look around, shout out to Darius, shout out, shout out to Kareem. I saw that you guys both got your black belt. I know Mark On got his black belt, I think, six months ago. Those are guys that were blue belts when I started at Evolve. Yeah. Mm. So there's this whole generation. Cal, yeah. shout out to you, Cal, GFT and JB. You just got his black belt also. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, congratulations. So that's congrats awesome. to Cal. Yeah. And all of this yeah. is new. But over the next few years, mm. I mean, man, they're going to start getting spat out like crazy. Yeah. You think of the SEA Games in four years from now, five years from now. Yeah, it's a really exciting time, and it's, things are just beginning for yeah. in martial arts, particularly, you know, like jiu-jitsu. It's, it's, it's going to get very big, and, you know, I think Singapore is going to get very well known for the quality and skill level of its competitors, definitely. You know, yeah, so, I yeah. mean, it's interesting because I've seen it across multiple disciplines. I know Madeline Wee, she got, she got I think, a bronze in wrestling or something like that. Yeah. I, think, yeah, I can't like remember exactly what the, the medal was, but I did her first trial lesson ever <laughs> at the old trifecta over there. Okay. So I did her yeah. very first lesson. So she she's a purple belt in jiu-jitsu. Yeah. And then she now meddled in the SEA Games in sure. wrestling. Okay. And then there's other guys like yeah. uh, Benjamin, who's yeah. at New Fit. Yeah, ben, I was yeah. there when he first started back when he was doing Muay Thai and had a Muay Thai fight. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And he that's transitioned right. to jiu-jitsu after that. He just yeah. got a medal. He got a silver medal. That's right, yes. And, yep. Quan from yeah. uh, Highlight Reel now. Yeah. I remember rolling with him at White Belt when he was at Evolve. Like, yeah. <laughs> and now, so all of these people across several different disciplines mm. are starting to get some serious skills and internationally even. Yeah. You can I mean, start to see. And the amazing thing is they all, you know, not all of them are professional athletes. They, it's their passion. They don't get a lot of funding. They just go out and do their best and train hard and get great results. So you know, hats off to them. They, yeah, Madeline and Quan are teachers. Yeah, That's exactly. their full-time job. Yeah, exactly. They're, they're so, teachers. you know, it's an amaz amazing achievement from the jiu-jitsu side, you know, two golds, silvers, bronzes, you know, it's, it's um, really proud of them. You know, I was, I was lucky enough to be there on the first day when Noah Lim got his gold, mm. you know, and some of the instructors as well. So there's uh, Professor Teko from Evolve and yeah. uh, Teko Draculi uh, from... Um, I think Equilibrium. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so they they've been involved. And Major was coaching there as well. Yeah, exactly. He was coaching so some of the national team. A lot of volunteering, a lot of hard work, and and dedication. So, you know, and obviously May is uh, May Ui is mm. the manager as well. So, you know, it's is a good tight team, and uh, they'll they'll definitely be more successful in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, well, I mean, what were your takeaways? I, I just saw the clips, right? I didn't yeah. have the pleasure of actually going there, mm. but you saw the competition. It was two days, right? 
Yeah, I was there for jiu-jitsu on, on the Monday, Monday, and then I was uh, for watching the wrestling on the Tuesday. Uh, my takeaways is that they have achieved a tremendous amount on limited funding um, and sort of, you know, a very tight budget. And if they could get more sponsorship from anyone out there who can sponsor athletes, you know, uh, for the SEA Games and, and international competitions, then, you know, get in touch with the uh, national associations for the sport you're, pas you're passionate about. Mm. And um, that can only lead to great things. Yeah. Well, I think also the, the performance of Singapore especially when it comes to martial arts in general, yeah. the more that they continue to show their level, yeah. it will lead to more sponsorships yeah, and lead to more revenue. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I think most of the athletes, they, <coughs> they get a chance to go off on camps abroad and pick up experience and, and just get a different sort of take on their, their training. And, mm. and so more of that would be good in the future. So, yeah. I mean, they say that the national sport of Singapore is like football or something, but I'm sorry. That's bullshit, man. <laughs> <laughs> that is bullshit. Mm. You got you got one based out of Singapore. You've got an amazing <laughs> jiu-jitsu culture here, an yeah. amazing jiu-jitsu Thousands of practitioners. Thousands. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. from how many gyms? If you go to a jiu-jitsu competition now, yeah. the list of the different academies just goes mm. on and on and on yeah. and on and on. I mean, it's nonstop. Yeah. And then now with the rise, that doesn't even include boxing, kickboxing. you got wrestling now, yeah. like sambos mm. in the SEA Games now. I think quickly yeah. the martial arts is becoming the national sport of Singapore. Like you could <laughs> say that broadly because yeah. go to a football match in Singapore and then go to one and tell me what's, busy, what's busier mm. and more exciting and yeah. who competes better on an international level. Yeah, but I mean, you know, Singapore has got a very unique environment and, and you know, I'd say that exams are like the national sport of Singapore. That's like <laughs> their, their passion. You know, that's just a, you know, it's not just an Asian thing. Like that. It's their passion. <laughs> they love taking exams. Not their passion, but you know what I'm saying. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. A very, everything's very academic here, and, and it's, mm, which makes, true. you know, winning goals at the SEA Games and, you know, it, that, that more special, basically, because the environment isn't, it's not like other countries. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. That people aren't bred into that from youth that they're yeah. gonna, you know, and it's one of those. But that's what I love about Singapore, to be honest. Yeah, I love that it's like this kind of weird, nerdy, geeky <laughs> culture combined with a lot of people who love to train and fight, and then yeah. they go from their teaching job to go and train jujitsu in the evening, or they're doing what. Uh, that's cool. That's what I love about mm. Singapore. Yeah, there's a lot of talent here and a lot of dedication. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah and yeah. this Singapore loves games. And we were having a conversation earlier about how I thought I think that as opposed to a Western perspective, right? Like, yeah. I mean, I grew up wrestling in America, okay. and that shit was competitive, mm, yeah, terrifyingly yeah. so. Like yeah. I would get nervous every day going to practice. Mm. Like when I'm the rest, my wrestling school uh, or my high school was ranked top twenty in the nation in okay. wrestling every year that I was there. Yeah, and top twenty in America to be that you got to go hard. Mm. And those practices were fucking scary. Like yeah. honestly, like. <laughs> this is a true story. The first day that I ever went to practice, practice didn't end until someone puked. That was the standard. They wow, put a okay. bucket in the middle of the gym, and we started <laughs> running circles. We would do bear crawls. We would do sprints. We would do run and play, sprawl, run and play, sprawl, get up, suicide sprints until someone puked, and then training was over. I mean, you go to jail in Singapore for making yeah, exactly. kids do that, right? Which How are you going to compete with that? <laughs> that's the thing, right? Yeah, well, but I also extreme. Where are you from in yes. the States? West uh, Virginia. West Virginia, okay. So there's no, nothing else to do there except make 13-year-olds <laughs> puke in wrestling <laughs> practice, right? I've heard it's beautiful out there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just, uh, great mountains and all that. Sort oh, of my thing. God. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a bizarre country. There's nothing to do there except drink and shoot stuff. So. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but when you have that level of when it's bred that 
competition and especially something physical like that, even if it's football, American football, yeah, basketball, whatever. I mean, these guys start from mm. the time they're so young. And for a lot of people, yeah. it's even a way out of poverty. Exactly. You know, things the, like that. The financial incentives are definitely there and that, you know, you can make a living out of it, you know, limited, but you know, definitely uh, quite hard here though, especially in something like I, this. I just think it's in its infancy uh, and, um, you know, with, with things, with organizations like one sort of raising the profile of martial arts in Asia, you know, and around the world, I think it will slowly build up. And like you said, you know, in 10 years, the landscape's going to be amazing and completely different, mm. you know, with, with, the, with the skill level that, that's going to be there and the networks. Yeah. So do you think, like, um, are you one of the believers that you sort of need that harsh environment you know, the sort of compression makes the diamonds, right? So, mm-hmm. I mean, okay, so give you an example, right? Let's say, you know, one has tons of Russian fighters. They have tons of Thai mm-hmm. fighters yeah. who are world class, yeah. come from that level of poverty. Yeah. Do you think that Singapore, of course, you can get those talents. Yeah. Do you think they will be likely to produce talents of that level, given the fact that the lifestyle here is, you could argue, you could say pretty clearly it's a well, more wealthy, more affluent lifestyle, generally speaking. Are you one of those believers that you sort of need that tough environment or do you think the skill I mean one still has high quality Singaporean fighters I mean Amir Khan is really good Mm -hmm. right I mean they still have some yeah but I wonder if uh, I mean you need that external that rough external it's a tough question I mean probably probably they're going to be you know it's a bit like um, you know for for Chinese families you know coming from a Chinese family myself they're always going to push you to you know, become a doctor or an engineer or a lawyer and they got to you, you know? huh? <laughs> they, they got to you eh? yeah, I was an MMA fighter and then well, uh, I became doctor, a doctor I instead you know <laughs> what was I thinking but um, you know it's just that sort of Asian mentality and uh, you know when you go if you see some of the, the gyms in the Philippines where basically they've got, they've got nothing but they produce like world class athletes you do yeah, think yeah, yeah exactly exactly yeah right. so oh so yeah there is that but I think you know, every every country, every culture has its strengths, and you can't expect yeah. every 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 you know every every different sort of cultures produce the same sort of people. That's what makes yeah. different countries interesting. But you're gonna get you've got some great athletes here, that's for sure. Oh, there's, yeah, there's no question yeah, about yeah. that. And mm. what I like again about Singapore is that people here love it's like it's a craft, right? That's yeah. what I really like about what I was saying about the Singapore culture as it pertains to martial arts mm. relative to how it was where I grew yeah. up. Yeah, because where I grew up, it was just a fiercely competitive thing and it was yeah. all about explosion and power and lifting the yeah. weights to gain the power it wasn't so much of a technique thing mm. maybe it's partly because i was doing wrestling yeah which is a bit different than jiu-jitsu mm-hmm. which is much more calculated and technique based yeah not to say that they're not technical in wrestling yeah. but the the game in wrestling is yeah. short intensity high horsepower mm-hmm. of course you still need that technique too yeah but not in the level of intricacies that you get when you're dealing with jiu-jitsu yeah mm. um and so I like that. Like here it's, it is like a craft, like martial arts is a craft. People do it in their spare time. And it's a, it's a thing that they do a, a skill, a path of mastery. They're going down to try to hone yeah. to mm. the highest level that their <clears throat> body will allow them to, mm. you know, it's, it's sort of detached like that, which I really like about it. Yeah. I guess for them, it's, it's a way of life. You know, it's martial arts. It's not just going down the pub on a Saturday night and having a scrap basically. Yeah. That's not that they would anyway, but, and that, that's a sort of, in some ways, that's the way I, I see the comparison between like one and UFC. In some ways, in that, like one seems to me more about martial arts, and then UFC seems to be more about sort of 
fighting. Fighting. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's a very two diff, two very different organizations with two very different philosophies. So it's very and they're marketing to two different demographics, right? Mm, because yeah. I think that sort of the way that you just described the difference between one and the UFC is yeah. sort of the way I'm describing the difference in my training when I was in the US <laughs> and my training in Asia. Uh, no, I'm not sure. I mean, I've, I've never trained in martial arts in, in the US, so I You could probably get I the idea, know. though, yeah. the general yeah. idea, mm, right? Yeah. And it is kind of like that. Like, it's, a, it's yeah. a fighting. It's a competition, right? Whereas right. here, of course, it is a competition, but it's not like, I don't know, it just doesn't have that level of just aggression and yeah, just... This is, this is Singapore. It's, you yeah. know, everyone's very polite here. And yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, well, we, uh, yeah, I mean, but that's, again, that's my yeah. favorite, that's why I live here now. I, I was like, I was like, I'm out of there, man. I can't, I can't handle this. The wrestling practices are too terrifying. I need to get the hell out of there and come somewhere else that's a bit more chill. <laughs> I think that's why my disposition also was more toward jujitsu because right. I like the fact that you can relax and you can chill out and you can just flow yeah. and you can let people work sometimes. And do you, do you think it's difficult to transition from wrestling to jujitsu? I mean, apparently, obviously not because wrestlers do so well, but what are the, things as a re ex wrestler what would you did you have to sort of change your mindset about the biggest thing is the training modality yeah and that <coughs> level of intensity because you know <coughs> jujitsu's perhaps whether it's a misnomer or not called the yeah. gentle art yeah and there's some truth to that right yeah we, at the higher levels especially i mean i've been doing jujitsu for 15 years now okay and so really in the last five i've understood what that meant yeah because even when i started pretty much up until i became a teacher yeah teaching jujitsu I w it was a competition for me. I would okay. go to win. And I mean, I wasn't trying to be a dick or anything, but mm. I'm trying to tap everybody out all the time. Yeah. And if I'm losing, I'm fighting like hell to not lose right. or to, you know, yeah. all that kind of stuff. And because wrestling is just so intense. Hello. I mean, every, every <laughs> round that you're sparring, like coaches are yelling at you yeah. and you're just like, it's so overwhelming because okay. it's like two minutes and yeah. you got to go. There's never any stalling. You can't take a step back okay. and then you're getting yelled at at the same time that you're doing this and yeah. then you're getting smashed and crushed and tied up and you're just like, oh my God. It's so much <laughs> sensory overload, okay. right? In <clears throat> jiu-jitsu, you have way more time. It's like okay. five, seven, eight minutes to work. Sure. You have to start and you have to stop and you have to rest and you have to go. Yeah. And you know, you, you injure people if you train jujitsu like you train wrestling. Yeah, I'm sure. You know, if I do like a, think of a blast double or something, right? Mm, like if yeah. I do a blast double leg and try to take yeah. you down, the, imagine the amount of energy it requires to do that. Imagine trying to put that same amount of energy into an arm bar. Yeah. Like even just the yeah. step over, even if you don't explode your hips, but yeah. if you just blast into it with that same, mm. you injure people even if you don't mean to. Yeah. yeah. Right? And it's sort of that. It's changing that so you know that in jujitsu, it's a lot of start and stop, start and stop, rest, yeah. explode, rest, explode. But the overall level of intensity yeah. is significantly lower yeah. than in wrestling. Because you've got two minutes in wrestling. That's mm. it. Two yeah. minutes, three periods. Yeah. Like, because the first thing that people do in wrestling is they, they try and go to their front and they give up their back, basically, because they don't want to get pinned and, yeah. and lose the match. Was That's, that, of course, the biggest technical difference, yeah. right, is that you can't be on your back. Yeah. So there's the training and the, how you actually yeah. approach the training itself. But, of course, the technical difference yeah. is the guard. Yeah, that's yeah. the big one. And then sort of going from taking them down, sweeping them to getting moving to submission, which you don't maybe not do in most forms of wrestling. Did you ever wrestle? Did you ever no, do no, no, no way. Do you ever start your, your rolls <laughs> on your feet? That's, that's my next Are you a guard puller? Uh, what are you doing? Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of... Uh, you a filthy I'm a, guard puller? I'm, a mas I'm in the Masters League now, so yeah, that's right. So I, I kind of, you know, just, just go easy and, uh, you know, I, do, I wouldn't, don't want to be seen as a guard puller, but I just think in some ways it's, it's like the... Easiest way to avoid resistance. getting <laughs> injuring yourself. Well, the yeah. number one way to get injured is falling body weight, right? Yeah. Which is very, yeah. that's what wrestling is. Involuntarily yeah. having your weight <laughs> fall to the ground.
right? So guard yeah. pulling is definitely, as you get older, the, the better move. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you can also, as you train more, relax as you wrestle. Yeah. And those, the way that you would think of, like, having maybe a chill role with somebody that you know, that you trust, yeah. that you train with, yeah. that you know maybe the levels are same, but they're not going to hurt you, yeah. right? You can do that with wrestling, too. Okay. But not as a beginner, because yeah. it's so... Yeah. explosive it is yeah but it's as you get higher up the levels you can chill out too and yeah. concede takedowns like that was the thing that i couldn't do when mm. i was younger i was like i yeah. could not give up a takedown right okay. now it's like if i have to fight fiercely give up a takedown and maybe i'm going to hurt my back or maybe i'm just going to go down yeah yeah you know <laughs> i'll yeah. just let it happen <laughs> go, go to the next thing right i'm not going to fight so that's hard. all right yeah yeah you gotta, lose, keep, lose, gotta keep training that's the ego yeah that's good yes. yeah mm-hmm. which is yeah i think a big step you make in martial arts is once yeah. you lose that you can still have it <clears throat> in times, but yeah. you also just accept the fact that you don't have to win every yeah, single exchange, exactly, yeah. right? Yeah. You ever do any Muay Thai or striking? I yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I'm it's incredibly like aerobic and uh, you know physically demanding. But I just I thought I'd try and concentrate on on one thing at a time, and mm-hmm. you know. But I do enjoy Muay Thai when I do do it. But it's the skill level that I, I'd see sometimes is incredible in conditioning and. You know, it's yeah. it's it's a fierce, fierce sport. Well, the training for that one is quite different too, because yeah. <laughs> you know, like in jujitsu, even if you're chill, you can yeah. pretty much always try to win. Yeah, and you can go somewhere near as hard as you can with some control and still everybody's yeah. safe, right? Yeah. But if you do like Muay Thai or MMA sparring, you just can't beat the shit out of your training partner yeah, nonstop, no, no, right? No, exactly. You yeah. have to let them work, or yeah. you're going to scare people away. The training becomes unfun. Yeah. Your training partner is going to hate sparring with you, yeah. especially in MMA, right? Like uh, if you do MMA training, here's a really good analogy. If I get you in the mount, mm. right, I can be there for like five minutes trying to choke you or trying to armbar you or mm. trying to take your back. And that's a totally normal situation, yeah. right? But if I mount you in MMA and I sit there and I punch you for five straight minutes, you're yeah. going to be like, dude, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> like, this is awful, right? So yeah. just in that sense, you have to let people work because nobody will train with that guy. If they just mount you, pin your arms down, yeah, punch yeah, you yeah. like you're a three-year-old, just <laughs> pinning your arms down, you know? Yeah. It's, so. Yeah, it's got to be fun. I mean, the, these guys are not, most of us are not like professional athletes. So there's got to be some, some sort of, uh, level of enjoyment and yeah. learning involved. Yeah. It's the, uh, the trick for me is the, the optimum level of difficulty. Yeah. You ever, you ever hear uh, Faraz Zahabi talks about that? He talks about like, you, you don't want to hit the flow state, right? That's, yeah. That should be the ultimate goal of your training session mm-hmm. because if you hit the flow state, the, t- the time flies by, you're having good, yep. you're having a good time and mm-hmm. you're, not, you're not thinking about what you're doing. You're in the moment and you're reacting naturally, yeah. right? And you know, everybody's hit that spot and then time teleports by and the end yeah. of it, all of your stress is gone. You're not thinking about your job. You're not thinking about your life or this or that or your girlfriend yeah. or your wife or whatever the hell you've it got is. Your, the buzz, the endorphin high, you've learned something and you're fit but not exhausted. Yeah, true. And you have to get rid of the things that <clears throat> block the flow state. Yeah. Right. And the first one generally, in my experience, is the cardio level. Hmm. It, that's the baseline. Yeah. If you come in and you're so tired in the first couple minutes, you're going to yeah. be so fatigued that you can't. <clears throat> Yeah. into the flow state, mm. right? So that's the first thing. Once you get the cardio down yeah. and that, that first hurdle's over, the next one is like the level of difficulty. You have to be optimally challenged. Mm. If it's too hard, you're going to get sucked out of the flow state because nothing you're doing is going to work. Mm-hmm. If it's too easy, it's not challenging enough to get the reward that you want. Yeah. So you need the, the fitness first and then you need to have that optimal level of difficulty. Sure. And if your coach yeah. can foster that so that you're in it most of the time, mm. for me, that's my strategy for like yeah. retaining students is they have to hit sure. that as much as possible. Yeah. Okay. Well, 
I think uh, you know you've 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 been teaching. Congratulations as well on, on the stronghold opening. And, oh, thanks, man. And uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, you've been instructor for quite a while now, and you used to be a teacher, is that right? Yeah, I used to be a teacher. So you know the the principles of education. But once was there anything you did you did differently when you you kind of opened stronghold, or you thought you'd try differently with your students, or just as your own sort of baby or business, you know? Mm. Well, the business aspect of it was totally new to me. Yeah. So that was the biggest difference. Yeah. But then trying to distinguish myself in this environment is the real trick, right? Because mm. there's so many gyms in Singapore already. Yeah. They're already quite competitive. Mm. So finding those ways to distinguish myself in a market of already very high quality instructors. Yeah, and absolutely. That's, yeah. that's the trick for me. Yeah, so figuring out, approaching it from the teaching perspective yeah. is where I try and distinguish myself. Because, you know, you have how many world champions, you have how many black belts, mm. world class competitors, yeah. all that kind of stuff. But even in my experience, you don't really have too many people who focus almost entirely on teaching mm. the thing itself, mm. right? You have a lot of competitors that do it as a job. Mm -hmm. And then even like uh, all the old coaches that I would do, I mean, their focus was always like teaching and training so that they could pay for their competitions. Mm. I'm not like that at all. My mm. sole focus is on sure. teaching what I'm mm. trying to do mm. and figuring out both the way to communicate that, these ideas clearly. Mm. And then, of course, make sure that my students that I already have in come back. Yeah, and uh, that's the trick is actually mm. the communication of the material yeah. mm. in a way that's yeah easy to get from exactly, the students. Yeah. You know, mm. yeah, that's good. But it's a yeah. it's a it's a crazy <laughs> it's a crazy <laughs> it's an experience. And, it uh, is an experience. Having having opened my own business like about fifteen months ago, I just I sympathize. It's it's like what are you doing for uh, your business? Well, it's just just basically set up my own brand and mm. you know just marketing myself and you know, as an orthopedic surgeon and, you know, the, all the ringside stuff is, is, a, is a kind of really added a huge extra dimension to my life. Are you tying that into your business um, as well? Do, I do have many for enjoyment, actually. Mm. I think if I didn't enjoy it, I wouldn't do it. But, you know, being a surgeon is my sort of my main profession. But uh, I've got a, you know, I really enjoy martial arts and interacting with athletes and, and sort of learning the art as well. And it's really sort of expanded, you know, my mindset and, uh, you know, working with one and, you know, I'm very grateful. Is this something that you foresaw happening or is this something you kind of fell into and then it was just something that you became very passionate about? Did you pursue it or was uh, it just a sort of happy accident that you... It, it was a sort of happy accident as well. We're, you know, I thought I could, it'd be interesting to, to cover a few amateur fights. And so for about a year, I covered probably most of the amateur events in Singapore until I realized that um, it was actually involved a high element of risk because the safety processes uh, were perhaps, you know, with, with the budgets involved and the number of people on the ground, it, you, if anything went wrong, it, it potentially put you at a fair amount of danger that you couldn't do but your you best you individually at risk, you mean, like as a as well, the position? Or? Well, let me give you an example. I think I was covering... Um, the Singapore Fighting Championships on one night. And basically there was, and that went fine, there were no problems. And then basically the news came over that um, an athlete had unfortunately passed away in the ring. Do you remember that, that uh, mm. the bodybuilder yeah. at that event? And I just thought, wow, you know, I'd, I'd offered to cover that event, but they'd actually sort of turned me down. And so, you know, and then there for the grace of God, you know, maybe, who, can, who knows, maybe I couldn't have made a difference, but, it may, you know, it really struck home how 
you really need a kind of layer of a good layer of safety to to cover martial arts events yeah. and that's why you know working with one they've got sort of the safest processes in martial arts in asia if not the world when it comes to sort of medical standards and working with a team and equipment and so on and so forth so i'm very happy to be working with them yeah that that stephen lim fight where that that uh that fellow passed away was a real shame yeah because i really don't think that that was even that 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 happened because that guy was not in fight shape. No, absolutely not. No, I mean, I mean, they should not have signed off for him to be able to do that. Yeah. People think that this is game, and he was just not. Yeah. First of all, he wasn't well trained, and he was yeah. not conditioned enough. Mm. That was just exhaustion. Yeah. To the point where it, it took his life, unfortunately. And this yeah. is, you know, this sort of celebrity culture because this guy is like a YouTuber, and it, they yeah. built it up as this sort of like Logan Paul KSI <laughs> type thing, but in Singapore. Yeah, he looks strong, but uh, he had not this as a different sort of strength and endurance level required. But I think there's been a lot of, a lot of sort of. It's a few years ago now, and there's been a lot of reporting and a lot of words being said about that. But it's very sad for his family. And uh, yeah, of course, yeah, no, I mean it's yeah. really, it's really sad. Yeah. Yeah. But this is this is what happens if you don't respect what's going yeah. on, and you think it's a game because yeah. even though. You know, concussions, getting knocked out, like, of course, that's a, that's a serious concern. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, you've seen this happen a few times. That, that uh, was a guy that Kimbo Slice fought, that Dada 5000 guy. Did you ever see that? I mean, that guy had, like, three heart attacks in the hospital after the fight because he was just so exhausted. Mm. And then he ended up dying shortly after that. Well, that, uh, you know, I think that's, that's what um, I'm kind of surprised about this recent sort of Nate Diaz, Masvidal, all this kind of hoo-ha about... Um, you know, because you've got a, if you have a decent ringside doctor who can basically step in, or, and then the referees also play a huge part in recognizing when an athlete is at risk of further damage, not be able to defend themselves, you know, and you've, you've got to respect that. And, and I'm very kind of, it's very perturbing because the, the doctor, regarding this recent UFC competition where um, the doctor stepped in and stopped that, the BMF. Uh, fight, so it was a doctor stoppage, and basically he's receiving death threats and all yeah, sorts of bad mouth thing. I mean, that's just just horrendous for the sport in general, really. You know. But well, uh, what was your take on the cut? Well, I think um, reading the, the interviews afterwards with Dr. Sethi, who is very well respected um, member of the ringside physician community, and he's also sort of the head of the. New York Athletic State Commission. So he's not he's not an amateur by any standards. He's very experienced. Basically, he said he didn't make the judgment to stop the fight on the basis of the cut alone. He was basically watching the athletes all the way through for those three rounds mm. and assessing him all the time and his ability to defend himself. And that's the thing. We can all be armchair. You mean like damage accumulated up to that point as well? Absolutely. You know, I think um, you know there was he was, a, getting, there was, he was there getting a bit of a beat there was down an early knockdown in the first round mm. and. Um, you know, what you can see on the screen is probably only around maybe 30, 40% of what really happens. Yeah. You know, you can be an armchair judge, be an armchair doctor, armchair referee, but unless you're actually in the ring with someone, ask them questions, watching how, you know, how they're moving, how they're responding, are their eyes glazed over, are they, you know, are they, do you think they'll be able to defend themselves? And if you think they're getting to the state where some, they're going to basically, something bad is going to happen, then I don't think it was really just in the cut alone because, you know, um, so I think there are a variety of factors involved which he's not able to discuss because it's sort of patient confidentiality. Um, but it's, I think it's pretty it's terrible the way that uh, 
certain fight fans are sort of rounded on him. I mean, yeah, that guy did a, not deserve that for yeah, sure. Yeah, it's a sport. It's not a death match. There's got to be rules and there's yeah. got to be respect for the officials. Well, yeah. most likely that yeah. doctor saved Nate Diaz from several more concussions because yeah. mm -hmm. that fight was going down. It was going down quick. He got dropped hard with a body kick. I mean, some of those body yeah. kicks were just slamming in. Mm. He, he was starting to get on yeah. the tail end of a pretty big beatdown anyway. And it would have been... Everybody liked to say that, oh, Nate comes on in the fourth and fifth round, and but yeah. it was not getting better. It was getting worse as time went on. Yeah. And if you think about the amount of strikes he would have taken just to that cut alone, yeah. let alone the, the yeah. concussive blows to the head, sure. he was getting his body beat up. But yeah, yeah. to threaten that, that doctor is just absolutely crazy. This is yeah. what happens if you put the word motherfucker on a belt. <laughs> you're gonna, <laughs> you, leave, yeah. you leave nothing but like chaos yeah. for the, uh, the people that are like, yes. And blood, death, kill. And that's why I really don't, <laughs> I don't usually watch the UFC because I just think it doesn't really like attract me. You know, the whole sort of, you know, not all of the athletes are like that, but some of the thuggery involved or the yeah. showboating or the trash talking or the behavior that goes on outside. It's not a good role model for me or, you know, for children, I think, you yeah. know, whereas um, at least, you know, I think one is basically promoting martial arts as a better way of life and has got values of discipline, integrity, respect, and so on, which really ties in what I think martial arts should be. It's not just about in the ring, but it's how you act and present yourself outside and how you interact with other people rather than try and, you know, trash talk your way out of a situation. Yeah, one doesn't glorify yeah. the sort of yeah. lesser qualities that are mm. inherent with fighting, the, the yeah. ego mm. and the violence yeah. and the aggression. Mm. And, and all that kind of yeah. stuff. I've never encountered any sort of um, aggression or ill discipline from any of the athletes or officials. So everyone is very respectful and it's a great place to work. Well, if they did that fight in Asia, I mean, mm. that reaction would not have happened. Absolutely not. This no. is, I mean, I've been to fights, I've seen fights in. The United States, I've seen them in Canada, I've seen yeah. them overseas, I've seen them yeah. in Asia, I've seen them in here, I've seen them in Kuala Lumpur, I've, seen, I've been probably yeah. eight countries I've seen fights yeah. in. And only the U.S. and Canada do I go to these fights and then I hear people just like, oh, kick them in the balls, punch them <laughs> in the face. Just this stupid shit that these drunk people are screaming, <laughs> booing fighters who yeah. are fighting really hard. Yeah. Right? I mean, these guys, these people in the stands don't even know what they're talking about to boo these guys because... They're not being aggressive enough or mm. violent enough or not doing it. It's like they don't even understand. And to boo them yeah. when they're in there with a trained killer <laughs> yeah. for your entertainment for not as much money as they should be getting and then to boo them at their work. Like only Americans, man. Like Canadians, Americans. Brazil gets a, does a fair, fair good job of that too. They have the worst one. They tell people to die. That chant that they do in Brazil, All right, okay. it's literally just tells people to die. Yeah, <laughs> like, well. So it gets a little crazy when you get in the Americas. But one thing I love about Asia is they really value the technique. If you go to like a one fight, yeah. if a leg kick lands, people mm. will start to yeah. applaud, right? I like, think they, they like, recognize a clean strike. Exactly. They're, they're there for the skill and the, you know, the atmosphere and the excitement, but they're not yelling abuse or... The only time you hear that is like the white dude. <laughs> it's like drunk, drunk no in the audience. <laughs> the, the one American sitting in the audience has had a little too many. Or Ron. Ron does his fair share of that too when he gets a little sure drunk at the one fights. <laughs> Did you... Uh, okay, so you, so what do you think about that Masvidal fight? Would you... I mean, is, to your knowledge, would you think that that's a good stoppage? Or you th would you be more inclined to let I him go I think absolutely. I mean, I think good it, it's not really... I mean, with that laceration alone, you can't, you don't make the decision on that. You're basically assessing 
you know, as a ringside doctor, there's so many variables involved. But, but it's the entirety of the Yeah, entirety, absolutely. Not. You know, he's basically look, watching him, see how many blows to the head he's got, what are the body, um, is he moving, you know, are his head injuries affecting his ability to coordinate himself and his balance and defend himself? You know, does he actually want to be in the ring? You know, is he able to listen to his trainer between the bouts? Um, does he know where he is? You know, all these mm. sort of things are, are sort of all the things that we can't see as a necessarily, and it's very obvious uh, as watching from the TV. You've got to be there and speaking to the athlete and sort of watching them very carefully. And um, it's not just the cut, absolutely not. And he's a very well-respected ringside doctor. He's very experienced. Um, he's probably one of the top ringside doctors in the world. So I think I respect his opinion and his judgment. I mean, the thing is, the fighters want to go on, right? Mm. They, they, they always do. Of course they, they always do, do, right? Yeah. That's, I mean, that's yeah. their game. But they, yeah. well, here's an interesting contrast, yeah. because today they just did the UFC. Yeah. They just had the big three title fights. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Amanda Nunes fought Durandamy, and then Max Holloway fought Volkanovski, yeah. okay. and then Usman fought Colby, yeah. Colby Covington. And interestingly, Colby broke his jaw in the third round, mm. right? So uh, was from a punch yeah. or something like that, ended up getting a broken jaw. Yeah. Fought on for two more rounds. Sure. And then... I would suspect because of the broken jaw, took a straight right yeah. and then fell down and the guy finished him with strikes. Mm. So something like that, it's, it's not quite as visible, right? But yeah. I mean, he would have taken tons of shots yeah. onto that broken jaw. And then I would, I think you could make a pretty good argument that if his jaw wasn't broken, he probably would have had the ability to finish that fight. And the fight was close. It was mm. like mm. two to two, two rounds to two rounds, maybe going yeah. into the fifth round. Mm. So what would you think about something like that? A fighter continuing to fight for 10 more minutes with a broken jaw, just taking those shots. I mean, that's something that doesn't have the visual quite like a, a large cut, but that's a problem, <laughs> you I, know, if you're in there. I think... Um I, again, I, that, I, right? I didn't catch, I didn't, unfortunately I didn't have time to catch that fight, mm -hmm. but I would say that sometimes with, with most fights, if there's a fracture then, and you felt that the athlete couldn't defend themselves, then you would stop that fight. They mentioned um, it in between the rounds too. Colby yeah. said that his, his <clears throat> jaw was broken in between, I think, the third and the fourth round. Okay, well. Would it be typical for a, a I think physician it's to step in and stop that at that point? I, th I think it's pretty, I think it would happen in most situations. Uh, I don't know who the doctor was covering that event or whether whether yeah exactly whether it's because it's the main event they think yeah. you know they've got that pressure to to yeah they've been pressured to not stop the fight that sort of thing you know so it's it's very but in most circumstances you know if, if an athlete breaks their jaw then you would stop the fight i think i think most people would most ringside doctors would agree that's a sensible and a safe thing to do which is interesting because i can't think of a single time i've seen it i can't think of a single time i've seen a, a fight I've seen people get finished because of a jaw break, mm. like similar to that. Like they yeah. got, they had a broken jaw, they got punched in the jaw and then went down. Same thing yeah. with the broken nose. I don't know mm. if you ever saw that mm. Robbie Lawler, uh, Rory McDonald fight. The second one mm. was one of the most brutal fights ever. Sure. And just the accumulation to damage on his broken nose. And then he just got popped one time and then, you know, the eyes fill up with tears and then mm. you just, and he just went down and it was just accumulation of damage onto a broken nose. Yeah. But I can't think of a time where like, for example, someone said in between the rounds, my jaw's broken and then a doctor coming in and stopping it. Mm. I mean, I, I agree with you that that's and surprisingly, most likely that person's going to lose. Yeah. I mean, if they get hit a couple of times, how are you supposed to withstand the pain and the, mm. the yeah. damage? I'm surprised that surprised they let him go on in, in you know, but I, like I said, I didn't catch that fight tonight. And surprised as an athlete, he didn't try and hide, most most people try and hide their injuries. So by saying I've broken my jaw, basically, is he trying to say please stop the fight, or you know because 
he's saying I'm injured. I think he was just saying that, just saying it, because I've never heard of a guy saying like, oh, my jaw's broken, and then the doctor going in after the fact and stopping it. I mean, yeah. I've, I've never seen that. You can definitely ask for a way out. Like, if you're, mm. if you're like, I'm, my jaw's broken, I'm done, then, of course, yeah. that's, that's yeah. fine, mm-hmm. right? But if you did that in America, they're probably just going to say that you're weak or some, <laughs> some nonsense like that anyway, so. Yeah, well, I think, uh, you know, I, I think uh, he's a bit of a character, Covington, and uh, he stars himself as this, the super villain, the super villain of the UFC. So I guess, you know, maybe there's some cosmic karma. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, people were, were paying to watch him lose more than anything. So <laughs> okay. he, wrote, he wrote a check that his brain had to cash in his jaw, I guess, because yeah. I think a lot of people were quite happy that he ended up losing that fight. He talked yeah. a lot of shit. Yeah. A lot of shit going into that, that fight. So yeah. I think he, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. If you're going to talk that game. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. he's a hell of a fighter. That was a good fight. It was really, yeah. really competitive. He was one or two minutes away from potentially being the champion. Yeah. But accumulation, that, that jaw fracture, and then he mm. got knocked down. There's only one minute left. One minute left in the fight. So yeah. they had fought for 24 minutes. Mm. And just, but, that's the way it goes sometimes. Yeah, indeed. So I wanted to get at least your medical advice on it. We're just talking, some, talking <laughs> okay. some shit here, but I wanted to get a little bit sure. of your, your medical opinion. Uh, and I, I had a guy email me who asked me to speak to you about uh, grappling, like specifically mm. head damage to grapplers. And what your thoughts are on that? Because typically you think of, everybody knows that if you're doing boxing or if you're doing Muay Thai, mm. taking damage to the head is a, is a real problem. Yeah. And you want to mitigate that as mm. much as possible. But well, what would you, your take be on like grappling or wrestling or something like that? Well, in general, you know, at an, particularly at an amateur level, if, we, if you consider the amount of um, bouts that go on, even in just Singapore, there's probably like hundreds of, you know, bouts of sparring that go on every day um you're talking about what head head injuries or injuries in general to the Uh, specifically in this case let's talk about head injuries Hmm. okay well in general you know it's it's actually very very safe in the kind of environment that we practice in um and as an as someone who sees a lot of concussions from other sports like rugby you know i see a ton of concussion people who come in with head injuries from you know, contact sports. Um, well, football, like hitting a ball even. Mm, right? Yeah, I mean, exactly. Are... Yeah. So the actual injury rates from other sports is much, much higher than most martial arts. Really? That's uh, in, in terms of certain types of injury, you know, like horse riding, for example, anything involving a horse falling off a horse, you know, you're going to break something if you fall off that horse potentially. So yeah. that's not, that's a, and, um, but people don't think of it as a violent sport, even though, injury rate potentially is potentially higher it's that falling body weight exactly that's what exactly you. yeah mm-hmm. so m- maybe you know with the grappling as well it's not it doesn't involve striking unless it's involuntary or someone needs your accident in the head so you tend to tend to not get a lot of concussions or you know that sort of type of injuries with the other impact sports so you know by with with regards to uh you know and hardly ever do i you know, anecdotally, you know, in the past, people used to get choked unconscious now, but most people are pretty sensible and tap out before they lose consciousness and don't, ha- you know, don't have that ego. Um, well, that's a good, that's a good thing. I yeah. hope you don't mind me interrupting just to yeah. go into that point a little bit. Yeah. We're, we're, okay, so I've seen people choked out. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know how many times at this point, right? Been choked out a few times myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are there any damages to that? What's the, I've heard various sort of urban legends about, oh, you have to choke somebody for this long after they're unconscious to actually cause them damage. Is there any long-term damage to being choked out? 
occasionally. And then like, what's that line? What's like the, what's a safe zone for like, before you would actually have some sort of bodily damage well, from I, being choked unconscious? I think that the, da- the data is probably not really there. But anecdotally, you just don't get, you know, for example, we, we all have this term for boxers being, being, being called punch drunk mm. when they get older, or it's called pugilistica dementia. And that is from kind of being repeatedly punched in the head in training or competition, getting concussion, kind of build up over the years to perhaps this thing which is called kind of chronic traumatic encephalopathy. But you don't really, you know, who, who hears of grapplers or jiu-jitsu athletes having, you know, brain damage from being choked? You never, you know, have we ever met someone, you know, with that? No, we haven't. We've not really heard of it. It's not really a phenomenon. So if there is damage from being choked out, you know, you hear rare case reports of, you know, people, one in however many hundred thousands of injuries to some arteries or blood vessels in the brain, which can sometimes cause damage. But often I suspect that these people are slightly older and they have pre-existing conditions Mm. in their carotid arteries like uh, a plaque which can dislodge but in general if you consider the sort of the amount of sparring that goes around the world and there are very few case reports of brain damage from you know if, if any I couldn't you know if you like if you ask if you search on it on the kind of medical database I, probably, I bet you wouldn't find a single one of brain damage from from being being choked out you know? yeah I mean I've yeah. seen it myself tons of times yeah is there uh, my estimation was that it would probably need to be somewhere in the neighborhood of like 20 to 30 seconds of mm. like an extended choke post unconscious to really yeah. threaten somebody's life or give them mm. a just because, but that's a long time, man. If yeah. you're, if you're limp, mm. like that's so unrealistic. Mm. I mean, just a few seconds is you feel it. Like, yeah, I, I think in the scheme of things, you know, grappling arts and from that perspective and jujitsu is very, very safe, you know, from, I don't think you're going to get brain damage from, you know, your average sort of scenario, basically. So I don't think it's anything to be too concerned about. Mm. You know, all sports, <coughs> excuse me, have an inherent risk of injury, and, and that's what makes them exciting. But I don't think yeah. that's one of the major risks of participating in a grappling sport. So what, so then let's let's segue a little bit into the sort of more striking discipline. Yeah. Mm. Um, because what I'm really concerned with, and I think most of the listeners of, of this podcast are going to yeah. be your sort of average Joe yeah. people who have their mm. day job and they like to train in their free yeah. time. Mm-hmm. You know, of course, the risks of taking a fight and yeah. the concussive blows and living yeah. down that career path and then the really intense training yeah. that you need mm-hmm. to do to get to that point, of course, can lead to some some problems that you may yeah. have with some sort of CTE or whatever mm. the case may be yeah. if you choose to go down that road. But what about somebody that's more of a hobbyist, yeah. but maybe they're like me, like I do Muay Thai sparring three or four times a week. Mm. I'm, I'm taking very little headshots, but I'm taking some, right? Mm. But they're never hard enough to like sit me down. It's, it would be as hard as me just getting a glove and then kind of just going like that, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not even close. I, I don't get headaches. I or, don't think that's quite, I don't think that's quite the same. I mean, 10 years of that, you think, as long as it's controlled. Okay. Well, if we look, okay. If we look at a sport where you do get a lot of, can potentially get, you know, a concussion maybe every, quite often, like rugby, for example. So I cover a lot of rugby just, a lot of rugby matches in, in uh, Singapore. And um, there's a lot of kind of awareness about concussion. And so they basically have very kind of strict criteria about, you know, spotting it and taking people off the field and being assessed and then mm. automatically sort of being rested for two or three weeks 
And once you have your concussion symptoms are completely cleared and you still have two weeks where you have a kind of graduated return to play. So I think the world rugby is sort of streets ahead of any other sport in terms of management, management of concussion and trying to prevent any sort of further head injury in the long term. Um, I think there's, you know, in the NFL, it's probably litigation-led uh, in terms of what they're, they're going to do. Like, people are actively avoiding retiring early or yeah. avoiding sending their kids to play, you know, American mm. football because of the, the fear of this phenomenon called CTE, which is still undergoing a lot of research mm. or getting brain damage in later life. In terms of martial arts, I think that, you know, if you were, did get a blow to the head and... You know, the best thing to do is basically um, there There are some red flags, you know, which we always, in one, we always warn athletes about that they should always see a physician. You know, you should basically have with someone with you for, for the next 48 hours after you've had a head injury. And if you start vomiting, getting more drowsy so you can't be roused, lose consciousness, have seizures, problems with your eyesight, then you should go straight to the emergency department. And, um, and at least, you know, the problem with concussion is that some of the symptoms aren't, you know, they they're also affect your mood and emotions and ability to concentrate. Um, and so it's good to see someone who's actually perhaps, you know, a neurologist who's actually trained in that or a sports physician like myself who's actually trained in concussion management so they can sort of make a proper assessment and send you for necessary tests if possible. Because the fear is that, you know, if you get a head injury, you get a bleed to the brain, that bleed can sort of expand you know, and, someti- and sometimes rarely result in sort of death. So that's why it's, it's not something to be taken lightly. And if you have repeated concussions, that can add up over a lifetime. But I think just someone tapping on the chin every now and then probably, you know, it's unlikely that unless you, unless you have concussive symptoms afterwards, you know, like you feel like you, you can't concentrate, you've got a persistent headache or, mm. you know, there's a long list of symptoms it's probably unlikely to hopefully cause you long-term damage, particularly if you're wearing headgear. Yeah. What's uh, Oh, that's that's an interesting point. Yeah. Well, let me get one thing, and then I want to go back to yeah. the headgear because mm. the Olympics recently banned yeah. it, so I'd like mm. to get your take on that. But before we get to that, uh, yeah. what, what do you think about – what's a typical concussion protocol? How long would you advise someone to go without training, without any contact, mm. sort of – because uh, I'll give you an example. I have a – one, one of my Fred's students had yeah. a fight recently. Yeah. He came in and trained with me over the weekend. And he uh, he got knocked out in his fight, mm. and I mean he was on the mats like four or five days later. Yeah, and I and he's like, oh yeah, but it's just rolling, and I'm like, I don't know, man. I think you probably shouldn't be doing anything. Like, <laughs> just rest for take yeah. a couple of weeks of no contact because I was like, man, you know, sometimes you sit up in a butterfly guard, you get head butted, like someone takes you down, they yeah. accidentally fall the weight, you head hits the mat, like even little stuff like that. I, yeah. I'm very concerned about. Yeah. any sort of injuries in my training. Yeah. So what's a typical concussion protocol? And then like, what, what, would you, what would you recommend for like no contact if you even have these symptoms, mm. generally speaking? Yeah, well, I mean, the thing is that it really varies between sports and disciplines. There's some sports um, and some kind of organizations like One World Rugby, which have very good, you know, very strict sort of protocols or mandatory suspensions or kind of protocols and other sports most sports out there don't really haven't really sort of tapped into this issue of concussion so i think at the very least you shouldn't uh, train until all your concussive symptoms have basically disappeared you know so and sometimes that can take several days or weeks or months uh, for that to dissipate and then if you're talking about and then basically 
in, in, you should see a physiotherapist who sort of is able to, you know, again, it's difficult with, with martial arts because there's so many um, different ways of, of practicing martial arts, not many, not, not sort of a standard approach. But, you know, for example, if in a sport which involves contact like rugby, then they've got a graduated return to play protocol. So basically you start doing... Um, How long would that generally that, be? That would take about two weeks, at least minimum two weeks after um, all your concussive symptoms have stopped. Um, and then with 24 hours between sort of going between one stage to another. So like going from, you know, light aerobic exercise to doing some sports-specific drills and then doing you know full contact drills so the whole process can take sort of minimum 3 weeks mm. you know that sort of thing that still seems fast to me yeah. i mean i'm inclined to think that if you get i mean i guess mma was yeah. probably different than the concussions yeah. you get but i mean if i saw a student of mine that got like let's say a, like a one punch knockout mm. or a mm. head kick knockout yeah. or something i mean i'm thinking 6 months well there is a, a maybe sort of maybe contact a month or two in but actually yeah. before a fight or something i mean geez, i would think that in long, terms long of the the kind of the general consensus. There is a American Ringside Physician Association concussion um, consensus statement, and then in that they lay out sort of a whole list of, of mandatory sort of suspension periods for athletes mm -hmm. who have basically either TKO or KO, and that can range really from sort of you know and and the number of uh, and sort of number of TKOs that they've had so that can really range from 30 days to even 2 years so mm. that's <clears throat> they've you know a whole panel of experts and neurologists have sat down and sort of thought it out so there's based on the severity of the yeah exactly on the number of you know head injuries you've had over a period of time or and, and um, sort of level of your and how it was sustained so it's a very kind of very sort of gray area um, in martial arts, unfortunately, but there is a consensus statement. Um, and, you know, the minimum you should do is basically definitely not train while you have any sort of symptoms related to a head injury. And if you have any concern at all to go and see a doctor and with those red flags I mentioned earlier, if you have any of those or your friend has any of those, just go straight to the emergency department. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so let's get back to this yeah. uh, this this headgear thing because uh, okay. to me this is quite interesting because mm. uh, you mentioned that you think you earlier just kind yeah. of in a second that you thought yeah. the headgear would, would help. Mm. Now, interestingly, the Olympics just banned it for mm. amateur boxing. The IEC yeah. decided that mm. the headgear was causing more problems than they were yeah. helping. And I think their rationale, and actually I, I've observed this too. I mean, yeah. of course, my it's just anecdotal and just seeing it. Yeah. But... I have noticed in my years of training that when you wear the headgear, it's basically a license to be an asshole and just to throw harder, <laughs> right? It's like if people see that, they're like, oh, now I can punch way harder because you're mm. protected and you're safe. So I guess I could see the argument that assuming the levels of control during the sparring were the same, mm. that the headgear would soften the blows. If I'm, let's say I never go higher than 60% power. Yeah. If I can guarantee that without a headgear and I can guarantee it with a headgear, all things the same, the headgear would probably be preventative. But there's something about the psychology of seeing that poofy thing on someone's head where you're like, no, nah, I can really wrap my kick up there hard and you'll be fine. <laughs> I think the, again, there's a, as a ARP or American Rinside Physicians consensus statement on the headgear and, and basically they're, they're kind of on their discussions, they felt that uh, headgear should be worn um, during sort of uh, competition and it and basically I know there's it's in other sports again it's a bit of a gray area you know in rugby it's headgear has been shown not to really prevent concussion so that maybe you're right there's a, 
false sense of security if you had headgear for whatever reason. Um, and, uh, you know, anecdotally, you know, friends of mine who, are, who do do boxing saying they find it harder to sort of slip and bob and weave yeah. with this big bulky thing on the head. But overall, the consensus statement is that it should be worn as, as a level, as a, as a at least some layer of protection against mm-hmm. head injury. Uh, yeah, and the other thing, I mean, I, I get it for sure. The other thing that tends to happen with the headgear is that you tend to undervalue defense. Mm. And this is, if you ever watch the uh, Olympic boxing, like before they had headgear and then after, yeah. I mean, those guys swing hard. Like yeah. if you watch uh, Olympic, bo- Olympic heavyweight boxing, I mean, those guys are just windmilling punches. Compare that to a heavyweight. Th- yeah. This could be for a gold medal, yeah. mind you. Talented guys. Compare that with even a mid-level professional boxing fight where they don't wear headgear. Mm. The level of defense and how they have to protect themselves yeah. is so much more higher valued when you're yeah. wearing a, or when you're not wearing a headgear than when sure. you are. Yeah. I think it's those kinds of arguments that led the Olympics to get rid of them, but I think it remains to be seen because this mm. is the first one yeah. coming up, the upcoming Olympics, where they're going to enforce that rule. Yeah. So, so it remains to be seen whether it's a good thing or not. I tend to favor the thing that makes the defense more highly valued than the offense. And I think there's something to be said about the fact that those people just wing those punches hard because they don't have to worry so much about what's coming back. Yeah. But I, I really don't know. Hmm. Well, I mean, there are, there's, there's basically positional statements there from ringside positions. And they, they basically say where the head guard, where the protection provides some protection may not defend everything, but it's, you know, there for a reason. And maybe looking at the overall, you know, we're not all Olympic athletes, so maybe it, it's good to have some sort of level of protection if you're, you know, you're an accountant or a lawyer or someone out there who, who likes to spar. Yeah, and it would be interesting to know if, like, the, uh, yeah, 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 I think, yeah, that's true. And I definitely think that, for me, it's all about the environment that you train in. Yeah. Because... I'm saying everything basically on the assumption that people will just go harder when they have headgear on, <laughs> which is what I've observed, but should not be I'm the not case. sparring you with you, right? that's no, for sure. I don't, I don't do that, man. Listen, I always chill out. I'm not, I pull everything back. I've, 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 actually, I get quite annoyed because in the last three years that I've been doing this sort of – I've been doing it full-time for like four, yeah. four or five years, yeah. but – Injuries happen when I'm not at the gym, yeah. and it really upsets me because uh, yeah, even yeah. just a couple of days ago, someone got injured. I get a uh, first off day in months, and then yeah. someone gets injured. I'm just like shit, because <laughs> <laughs> you know, my basic my basic job here as the the coach is just to enforce yeah. Yeah. security and safety because sure. that's my biggest concern. If people want to come back and they want to keep training, yeah. I have to make sure everybody's safe. And if your gym has a reputation for injuries, yeah. that that gets around. Well, I think I think um, yeah, I'm sure. It, you know, I'm sure that you do enforce it and basically keep it safe and sensible because, you know, at the end of the day, you don't want your, no one wants their students to go home injured. They want them to enjoy it and get a sense of achievement and build and keep be training. And um, <clears throat> I mean, my, my jiu-jitsu classes, I'm always grateful that they do watch out for us because you know how you can have a range of, of athletes from, you know, six foot four to, to a young, to a kind of, four foot something kind of uh, lady so we try and match them up between skill levels and and basically stamp down on any sort of crazy behavior so it, i do i'm very grateful to my professors for basically trying to keep us safe and but yet competitive 
Yeah. So, yeah. If you yeah. get those those twenty year old three month three month into jiu jitsu white belts that are oh god, jacked, yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm you sure. You got a problem on your hands. <laughs> <laughs> that's what they say, isn't it? That the the white belts are the most dangerous. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. yeah that's absolutely. right. The yeah. really, especially the athletic, strong, competitive yeah. ones. Yeah. Maybe you know, been training only within less than six months. Once you get them the blue belt, yeah. generally there's a. I think yeah. the level of safety increases substantially. Mm-hmm. But yeah, those athletic young 20 something yeah. teenagers yeah. That for the first three months of jiu-jitsu you gotta you yeah. gotta be careful i'd like to think i was one of those but i think i was just uncoordinated <laughs> so uh yeah sorry to uh, any of my training partners <laughs> okay so we talked we, we hit up the we hit up the head injuries okay i want to talk a little bit about the below the neck below below the belt yeah, right okay. i mean I, honestly the biggest concern for me is of course the, the head trauma because mm, I mean, you can do yeah. nowadays modern medicine you can do <clears throat> great stuff to the below the neck part mm. that you can't quite do for yeah. the above the neck part yet mm-hmm. so uh you know i think when it comes to boxing and striking disciplines you really got to be aware of the head contact yeah. and then i think with the grappling you got to be quite concerned below the neck particularly the neck the spine the back and the knees mm. and the shoulders yeah. Those tend to be the problems that I see a lot of people deal with. And, you know, especially those back, knee, and neck injuries, those things will put you out for a year. Mm. Tear an ACL or something like that, that is not, yeah. that's a long yeah. time mm. to recover. And then you also risk re injury. And yeah. that, that is not pleasant stuff. So, yeah. uh, you know, what's your take on the sort of, what do you do to sort of, or recommend other people do if you can't follow <laughs> it yourself, to sort of mitigate these particularly problematic areas? You know, the neck, the knees, the back. I think in general, like, the risk of injury is is low. And, you know, overall, it's a relatively safe sport compared to something like horse riding, for example, surprisingly. But I think that uh, the first thing to do is is basically just um, just kind of be, be kind of look at who you're training with. Like you said, if it's a young 20-something white belt has got something to prove then you might want to say well look maybe we'll just sit this round out or you know your ego as well is something you know i'm sure as an instructor you know you basically you're trying to say to people look just tap out don't you don't have to kind of resist until you fall unconscious or if you feel that you've lost that position you know i feel you know i maybe maybe i tap out too easily because i'm kind of you know i just but i i just think you know it's not you're not you're there to learn something and if you're in a position where you've you can't progress or you'd be on that position or you've then just give up gracefully basically and start all over again, you know, and try better next time. That's the great thing about, you know, jujitsu, you know, just you keep learning, but it's sort of full contact. Yep. Every tap is yeah. just a reset. Right? Exactly. Let's go exactly. again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, and then in terms of like, um, you know, you're, like you said, you know, st- Stretch conditioning, body conditioning is is very is very important. So stretching before and after, getting your fitness up to a decent standard. So you're not just sort of gassing out, conserving your energy, you know, and then sort of not leaving your arms and arms and legs lying around to be sort of twisted around is very important. Mm-hmm. So I always use that kind of like cougar grip, monkey grip type thing. I never kind of have my hands out like that anymore. Yeah, because the fingers are another yeah, one. Exactly, quite, yeah, exactly. So especially as a surgeon, right? You got yeah, to keep, keep those things clean and yeah, protected. So I, and I, tape, I tape them up like crazy and I use the cougar grip and yeah. I try it's not, to, I try not right to use there. spider guard yeah. and all oh, that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. I don't play that anymore. Yeah. I hurt my knee and my, of course, your hands and your shoulders <clears> yeah. and everything, but I popped my knee two times doing a lasso guard. Yeah. Because, mm. you know, it puts a lot of that, that pressure on the outside yeah. of your knee when you wrap the foot into the yeah. lapel as people start to give a lot of 
pressure and everything. Yeah. So yeah, I don't do any of the crazy. The only time I grab the sleeves like that yeah. is like to recover something sure. or to hold off something, but yeah. I'm rarely playing those games where I'm pulling and stretching my legs. And yeah, another one that I see a lot of, maybe get your take on this people inverting the guard. Hmm. You ever see people do that upside down, you know, toes over their head. This is a really trendy style of jujitsu nowadays. And I, I warn people a lot because some people will spend rounds with people 20 kilos heavier than them on their head, legs in inverted guard, just yeah. playing there the whole time. And I'm like, listen, man, if you put that kind of stress on your neck and your lower back and you're playing that guard all the time. Well, luckily for me, I'm not that skillful. So <laughs> then I could actually achieve You're aware that. of what it is, right? When yeah. you invert like that. Yeah. So, I mean, I, again, I, I think one of the things is just to listen to your body because I have people who say, oh, I train six or seven times a week. And to me, that is like, if you're, if you're experienced and you know how to pace yourself and then, and then basically like you're able to recover, that's great. Cause I think a lot of these things are someone picks up a bit of a twinge, a bit of an injury, and then sort of the next time around it can potentially sort of worsen or, or tear or something like that. Mm -hmm. So I think having some, giving yourself time to recover and rest is really, really important as well. You know, between, especially when you're kind of more senior, I suppose is, is the term. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, longevity with training is my is one yeah. of my major focuses. Yeah. And, you know, we were talking earlier about sort of like leaving your limbs out and tapping early yeah. and stuff. Yeah. I mean, that's really important. And nobody wants yeah. to do it because the ego gets in the way. Yeah. But basically what happens is the longer you train, the it yeah. increases your overall awareness, yeah. both on how far can my joint go before it breaks <laughs> or how long can I defend this choke before I pass out? That's the extreme example, of yeah. course. But more likely is like, you know exactly when to tap before you're going to, maybe it's not going to break, but it's going to be a little stiff tomorrow. Yeah. Same thing. Like, okay, can I, can my neck support this sort of position? How much yeah. can I fight off with my knee sideways? Like, like mm -hmm. even that rubber guard or something like yeah. that, that puts that extreme pressure on the outside of your knee. Triangles. I've seen people try to put triangles on big people, pop their knees because they're squeezing so hard. Mm. Like, uh, all of these sort of little things that you can do in jujitsu, the longer you train, it increases your awareness of how long you can hold off, how much resistance you should do. Yeah. And just, yeah, of course, tap early. Don't, don't wrestle so hard. Don't explode into double legs, right? Yeah. Like chill out in those areas and it will just increase the <laughs> amount of time you can train exponentially. I mean, I think the ultimate really is that, you know, you basically use skill and not, not strength and, and, uh, you know, you basically have to do things without ever expending a great deal of energy, which I don't know if is ever possible, but I guess that's the sort of like the, the ultimate basically is never to get out of breath or never and just sort of be able to elude the attack and counter and, and put in your own attack without really having to struggle. But I guess that's something we all, a skill level we all aspire to, but mm. you know. It does just take getting out of those 20s, I think. <laughs> I think once you get out of the 20s, man, you're, you're yeah. okay. If you're still training at that point, you get into your 30s, you get the technique that doesn't require you to overcompensate as much with athleticism Yeah. where you're not getting crushed all the time because yeah. that will also stroke, like feed into the ego and make you want to fight a little bit yeah. harder. But when you can rely on your technique and then if your technique fails you, not freak out and like <laughs> spaz out or overcompensate yeah. now with explosion. Because yeah. I have students that are know how to relax now. Yeah. But then, you know, the white belt or the new person will come in and pass their guard. And then I see them going ape shit all of a sudden. It's like, why are you? You're good. You don't need to do that. Why are you freaking <laughs> out? And because they, it was a little moment of like 
eating humble pie maybe or something. And then yeah. for a second that they decided to freak out yeah, and then okay. someone's I hurt. I eat humble pie all the time, so <laughs> I, I don't need to feel the need to freak out. It's my favorite flavor, man. <laughs> it's my favorite. It's good for you, everybody. That's right. Yeah. It's good for you I'm to lose. To this. I can, you know, just like Captain America, I can take this all day. How uh, yeah. how often do you train when you are doing? What do you I, try? Well, what's the I, goal? Okay, I, I think when I first started out, I was it wasn't too bad. It's maybe like on a really good week, I could train maybe three or four times a week. But nowadays, with kind of uh, all the stuff I've traveling been doing and some niggling injuries, then not as much as I should be. But I really want to get back into it. I've been inspired by the Sea Games. Nice. So I want to, you know, get back in there, compete, yeah. for, compete for my slot on the Sea Games team. You, you get some FOMO watching all those guys compete, <laughs> is it? You're like, ah, oh, damn it, I could not I could really. be in there. I could <laughs> be in there. I gotta get back. There's that's no, cool, man. That's no good. That's a whole different level. Hey, I'll tell you what. Watching people <laughs> compete and train, though, does. But you're just like, yeah, oh, I yeah. Get back in there. <laughs> That's no, good stuff, man. That's the, yeah. So you're a blue belt. You say, how long ago did you get your blue belt? Uh, I got a year ago, but I really haven't done done myself justice here, done the sport justice this year. I haven't really trained much enough at all. And uh, that's with setting up the working on the business mm. and real you know, life. It's a long game, man. It's yeah, a yeah, long game. Right, yeah. Don't rush anything because jiu-jitsu is always around. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> like if you want to get your black belt, fit 10, 15 years. Yeah. Like it's a long game. Mm. So, you yeah. know, you still got time to stick around and keep training. Yeah, I think so. You were telling me earlier that you, you popped your knee doing a, a knee slice or something like that, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's one of those things. I mean, Is it a complete tear in your meniscus? No, or it's just partial? a small tear. So, oh. I mean, it's, I haven't got any. Uh, sometimes when you tear meniscus as well as pain, you get this sort of sensation of locking or catching where you can't fully straighten. That's what mine does. Bend, yeah. yeah. And then, I mean, I, I found it difficult to squat for a few weeks. But things are actually really improving now. I've started to do some strengthening in the gym i should i plan to see a good physio and that's the way you should do it basically rather than rush into surgery for example oh yeah how yeah. long ago did you uh did you do that about a month ago about oh so it's five recent. weeks yeah that's right yeah so so what's the time window like if you if you do the right things you come back you take about a conservative approach about six to twelve weeks sometimes yeah so it a couple, can take, couple it, months. Can, it can heal up yeah Nice. Mm. And you do, you always recommend, I always recommend to my students to do some weightlifting, light weightlifting, not like crazy shit that's yeah. going to make them sore. Because I'm, I'm uh, an enemy of soreness. I don't yeah. want my students to be sore. Soreness keeps people out of the gym. Mm. So again, Faraz Hobby talks about this and he's, he's right. Like you shouldn't lift, a little soreness is okay. But yeah. what you want is overall mat time, overall reps. So if mm. you're in the gym, like you should do, again, it's that perfect... Um, a perfect level of difficulty. Yeah. Do enough that it's challenging, but not so much. If you can't do so many squats that you can't walk the next day, you're not going to go to training, yeah. right? A useful analogy is like, okay, if you want to do, let's say you want to do some pull-ups, you're going to do yeah. pull-ups every day. Yeah. Well, if I do like 20 pull-ups at once, I'm going to be so sore the next day that maybe I can't do pull-ups for three days, right? That, that reminds me of this. Um, I've had a couple of uh, athletes now who basically have just gone crazy in the gym and tried to do like 200 pull-ups or whatever in a short space of time. They've developed a condition called rhabdomyolysis. Oh, yeah. yeah. I've had that. Yeah. Mm. Well, Pete Brown. Yeah. I did. Yeah. When it, I was training I, for my last fight, I went to the bathroom and like Coca-Cola was coming out. And I was like, what the hell is this? <laughs> I was like, this cannot be good. Yeah. But in, in rare cases, it can actually, you know, be fatal. So it's quite a, because it, you know, what you're doing is you're, you're, you're working to such a state that your, your muscle is breaking down. Mm. And sometimes it can overwhelm or cause your kidneys to fail. So it gets into your bloodstream, is it? Yeah, that's right. The, this sort of create this thing called creatine kinase from your muscles, mm. and it goes to your kidneys, and and basically, sort of, and you get kind of extreme muscle pain. And mm. you know, usually people are dehydrated, and that's one of the keys is to try and rehydrate them sort of reasonably quickly. 
so yeah i've had a have a few of those which is kind of so that that is that's the extreme example of overtraining but yeah, yeah. Yeah, the CrossFitters apparently get that quite a bit because yeah. they do a lot of their exercises to failure. Yeah. Which, of course, I would never recommend because mm. that's, one, how you're most likely to get injured, and two, you're yeah. going to be severely sore. Mm. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, if you do – I mean, the, the simplest analogy is pull-ups or push-ups or whatever, yeah. right? If I can do four push-ups every day or yeah. four pull-ups every day mm. and you do 20 and burn yourself out and you can't do any more for the four or five days, yeah. I'm going to have way more push-ups than you in a week and then mm. in a month and then in a year. Yeah. And the overall work – yeah. is going to add more, uh, yeah. especially if you're doing something that's technique-based, but even strength. Yeah. You know, even, um, do, you, do you ever watch the Joe Rogan podcast? You ever check that out? Every once, every now and then, yeah. He had a guy on called uh, Pavel Tatsulin, who's, who's basically like this kettlebell guru okay. that is kind of well-known yeah. for bringing kettlebells to America from Russia. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's a proponent that, and, you know, he's, I think, if I'm not mistaken, he's a PhD. Okay. Or he's got a master's in some sort of physical yeah. uh, exercise, physiology, mm-hmm. all that kind of thing. And he talks about how you never want to go to, you would never want to redline, almost never. He's yeah. like, the time that you redline it is like when you're in the competition. Yeah. That's when you, if you do it any before, he's like, the highest you should ever get is like 80, maybe 90%. Yeah. And that's, ex- that's a unicorn, right? Mm-hmm. You do that really yeah. rarely just to see what you're capable of. But the 100%, the only time you do it is in the competition. Yeah. Well, that's it. I mean, I, I, I do have, um, colleagues sort of uh fellow people trained at Evolve who's sort of in their 60s is a uh, Papa Rich Wee and his his advice to be able to train kind of well into your you know as as you get older is basically exactly the same you basically train Sorry. up to that point where you can train the next day without aches and pains and it's going to be different for everyone but you've got to find that level you've got to find out what's right for you and then just sort of really just try not to push it I and mean, he's someone who's you know, brown belt, nearly a black belt, who basically does weights after the class. So obviously his level is very high, but it's a good philosophy to have. It's like he's he's able to train pretty much every day in Muay and in BJJ through kind of working on that sort of not overloading yourself beyond a certain limit. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, you know, this tends to be a young man's game, I would say, yeah. this kind of martial arts stuff, yeah. but not if you do it right. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there's no doubt that the benefits that you get when you're young are there, but the benefits you get when you're older, that's when it's very important. Yeah. You know, uh, that Pavel guy mentioned uh, something that I think is a really useful sort of yeah. analogy, which is like as you get older, you start to lose your fast twitch. Yeah. Your fast twitch muscles start to become mm. weaker and slower and less responsive. And he said something that's really common is elderly people falling down. Mm. And his argument was that, of course, if you, if you trip or something when you're young, your fast twitch is on point, you'd be able to catch yourself, mm. no problem. But as you get older and older and older, and those, especially if yeah. you're not actively doing some sort of strength training or yeah. quick training when you get into older age, mm. that you're way more likely to have fall, break a hip, have some sort of injury. I think there's a variety of factors involved. Um, you know, and you know, if you're, like you say, if you don't train your body so that you have some sort of proprioception and you're able to control your muscles and then you don't do exercise your bones aren't a certain density mm. you know then you're you when you, you're more likely to fall and when you hit the ground your bones are more likely to break it's it's true yeah and that doesn't even go into of course the health benefits the yeah, cardiovascular exactly. health yeah. and the, all the other benefits yeah, exactly, yeah. and the psychological for me yeah. i mean if i don't train i just feel like shit <laughs> uh, seriously when i wake up in the morning yeah like some days i'll just have you know how you like you fantasize about those lazy days right you're like oh i'm finally off i'm gonna do this i'm gonna i'm just gonna yeah. sit around and i'm gonna watch tv i'm gonna eat whatever the hell i want i'm gonna do after like two or three hours of that i'm just like i feel miserable okay i yeah, just yeah, feel yeah. i mean i just that morning workout for me that's a big one i really yeah. feel like i'm not just rocking and rolling until i get that that training in mm. and if i feel if I sit around and i feel lethargic 
it's a problem. Yeah, but it does. I mean, exercise does cause release of chemicals in the brain that that make you feel happier. You know, it, it's a endorphins, dopamine, all that sort of thing. So, it's a big, you know, under the right, on the most correct conditions, is a very positive thing to do. What kind know? of workouts are you doing these days? Um, well, getting in when you can. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's right. You look good, man. What are you uh, uh, it's mainly sort of gym based, you know, that's the sort of like it, but, um, do you have a routine that's quite typical for you or? Yeah, I do. I, I probably, it's, it's basically not enough legs, not enough core. Oh, is my just routine. <laughs> just doing biceps and chest, man. I feel you. One thousand, one thousand. The bro one. muscles, man. That's fine. I'm not mad at you. I get and it. Command. Traps. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Working the guns. No, I just, um, since my knee played up, uh, I, I find running difficult, but I'm trying to, I like, uh, training uh, i want to get back i want to do a bit of more muay thai more striking and then definitely sort of try and build up my bjj as well and try and enter some competitions later on this year yeah man absolutely yeah yeah that would be great it's the only way to push yourself and have a you know it's it's easier when you've got a target to absolutely yeah nothing will motivate you like somebody trying to strangle you in front of a bunch of people (laughs) hey (laughs) you want to get a little fire under your ass that'll do it (laughs) (laughs) that's right yeah what about uh, dieting? Do you have like a, a general? Do you guys recommend the the one guys to any particular thing for the? I mean, what's your take on just dieting in general and what to avoid, what not to avoid? What do you do? Mm, well, I don't. What should I'm, you do? I'm, whether you do it or not? I don't think I'm a great <laughs> example, but <laughs> was, uh, but uh, you know, I think um, you know, as long as you have your your sort of regular mixed amounts of protein, carbohydrates and fiber, you know, your vegetables, your vitamins, and you, you would stay well hydrated. For most people who, who train regularly, it's not an issue to stay within you know, the desired weight category or, mm. you know, but I think, you know, alcohol... What about for performance or something like that? Performance. Like the high performance. What's your take on like carbs? Are you, are you a, more of a keto kind of guy or do you like a little bit of carbs? Well, I I like to enjoy life myself, so I <laughs> yeah, exactly. Of, I, you know, I I probably I'm I'm probably not the. So I'm, you're a rice and you noodle know, guy. Yeah. <laughs> That's what you're saying here. I'm not a nutritionist. Uh, I, I have I'm I, I'm a, I've got yeah sports medicine background, but I'm a surgeon. So by by definition, that involves you know some degree of skill in red wines and 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 kind of things of that ilk, basically. Mm-hmm. So, but I would say that alcohol is probably the number one thing that brings like a lot of people down when they're trying to lose weight or yeah mean particular you know, so sugar will get you too yeah exactly sugar yeah, so sugary foods that sort of thing so i think it a lot of it is self-discipline and sort of mm. what you want and you know definitely speak to a nutritionist or a, a dietitian if you if you do want to you know a balanced meal plan that's going to suit your needs what about something like uh intermittent fasting mm. i'm a big proponent of that yeah i tend to eat my first meal sometimes around 12 but usually around like two o'clock yeah. So I'll eat my last meal after I finish at the gym, somewhere around 10 or 11 is my last meal. Mm. And then I'll usually go somewhere between 12 and 2. So somewhere between 14 to 16 hour fast. Yeah. So that that's, I mean, it's been proven to be very effective, you know, all these things like the 5-2 diet. Mm. And, um, but within a sort of, if you eat your food within sort of 8, eight to 10 hour window, I mean, some people eat it within a really narrow range, like six hours, but I mean, that's pretty incredible. Yeah. But I, I'm not a, I'm not a huge um, proponent of uh, the kind of ketogenic diets just because I think that it probably works for a short space of time, but you know, you can't keep up, up for the rest of your life because it's very unhealthy and then it's yeah. going to just come back. Yeah, yeah. And I'm a fan of carbs too. Yeah. I think the, that diet works really good for Americans because all they 
eat is bread. That's all they have is bread and sugar. Right. So I think the keto diet tends to have great results in America, but yeah. you, you know, people here eat a lot of carbs, but they're not as refined and as horrible for you as like yeah. white bread, mm. which is something that's very typical in America. Yeah. Right. And you know, here you get rice, you get noodles, but people here aren't overweight. And uh, one thing I really like about Singapore is they really go hard on sugar. Like all of the drinks are low sugar. You can't find like if you, there's a vending machine outside, hmm. there's no Cokes, there's no Pepsis. There are no, they're all like alternatives that are somewhat healthy, yeah. especially around the HDB blocks around the schools. Well, saying that, I mean, it's, it's a sad fact that actually Singapore has some of the highest rates of diabetes in Asia. And my personal <coughs> take on that is the drinks they drink at the Hawker center. Have you ever tried the, the Milo's or something? The Milo and the, they, they basically put that layer of evaporated milk. I in know. It. I know. I love it. I can't stop it. <laughs> I love it. I can't stop yeah. it. You okay? You want me to get you another drink? No, I'm good. Okay. I'm good. Cheers. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But I, I, you know, having worked in, and I think it's genetic as well. Like there's a high rate of diabetes mellitus in the pop, certain populations as well. So, you know, as a, as a medic here, you know, basically you see some pretty, scary things people have just left their diabetes and they've got kind of gangrene in their feet and all that something it's pretty horrible that, so yeah yeah it's the condensed milk and because even if you get like like my drink of choice is the kopi c okay. less, less sweet you oh, know yeah, what i'm yeah, saying yeah. i've recently gone to no sugar i do kosong now but i didn't for a while and then yeah. i think yeah it's just i think of the goop right because they put that condensed yeah. milk in and i can see that it's about that much and then i'm like okay well, if i have two or three coffees a day and then a week and then i extrapolate outward and i think of what the level of that yeah you probably drink a whole ass. bucket of uh, literally literally milk a, bucket, yeah, yeah, exactly, a whole bucket yeah. of it because i'll have two or three coffees a day yeah. and then so then yeah. i was like ugh, copios i think the move because i'm yeah. a coffee drinker but, but what did you think about, I mean, I love, I love the food in Singapore. I think it's, it's incredible. It's much better than anything, because I'm British and I grew up mm -hmm. in England. It's not exactly like famous for its food, like fish and chips or shepherd's pie. And when I was training as a doctor, all I had was like cold sandwiches or mm. crisps and a bottle of Coke. So when I came here, it was about five years ago. It's like Was that because of lack of That's what they eat. Energy that's, that's, their, that's just, just the culture there. They mm. have like a little shop that sells that sort of thing. So when I came here, like the food was like, wow. Oh, and I yeah. put on about five kilos in about a, you know, a year or something like that. <laughs> Literally, it just went. But you can't, you can't yeah, say no. Three dollars, yeah. five dollars. Like uh, yeah. if you go to Hawker, you're going to spend max like eight dollars yeah. and you can get a meat and some yeah. sides and some veg. I mean, it's, it's, inc it's an incredible place for yeah. food hands down because of and all the different types of food you get. It's incredible. But one thing I never really got used to was the local drinks like uh, the coffee. Yeah. And I think it's just a different sort of. Are you a coffee drinker? Yeah, I'm a coffee drinker. You do yeah. black? Yeah, black, black. Like Western white, style or, from a drip or you don't get it from uh, the coffee shops? I, I drink anything with caffeine in it. I'm not I'm the same way. I'm the same way. And, uh, you know, in England, they used to have these like box, boxes of free coffee, which were like the worst like sawdust kind of mud type drink. But you drink it because it kept you awake and mm. it was free. And so I, I don't complain, but I, I've never got quite got used to the local coffee. I think it's because it's a different type of bean brewed at low altitude and mm -hmm. all that sort of thing. But, um, yeah, that'll keep me away from, keep, you know, reduce my risk of diabetes because I don't usually drink that local and, copy. And you do it, uh, you do it with black? Or um, do you do a little I, sugar, a little no, something, I, something I in have, there? Uh, what are you doing? <laughs> that thing called copy siotai with uh, a bit, yeah. a bit. Uh, I try not to drink it all the way down to I where know, the evaporates. so good. Is, I yeah. drink it like that too. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah. that's the way that I have it too. Do you like to drink that? 
He's a he's a coke. Look at you with your coke over there. <laughs> you animal Wugong. You filthy animal with your Coca Cola over there. Yeah, that's right. Smile yeah. on your face as he's like, look at this assholes. I'm over here drinking Coca Cola. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, man. So can I pick your brain on one more thing and then okay, we can sure, we can yeah, get yeah. out. I okay. really appreciate you. No, no, this, no, man. This, this is, is a, it's a pleasure. This yeah. is gold. This is yeah, gold. It's, so. it's fun. Yeah. Uh, last thing I want to hit you up on was the the hydration stuff. Right. Yeah. I sent you a little message about that because mm. uh, one's doing the the hydration test now, mm. and uh, you know even uh, this these UFC fights. We were talking earlier about these guys cutting weight. Yeah. They're cutting on av- I mean, I'm guilty of it too. For my last fight, I walk around at like 74 kilos maybe. Hmm. I cut down to 65. Wow, okay. I think back then I was probably 76 or 77. I cut about 10 to 12 kilos. Yeah. So I'm kind of in that range. Yeah. But uh, I did it the correct way and I grew up wrestling so that was sort of yeah. something that I I knew how to do and I hmm. wasn't, you know, I was I was kind of miserable actually as I think about it. As I think back about it, I'm like, well, I was pretty awful and I was pretty sucked in and stuff. But anyway, they do. Actually, I saw, unfortunately, the, the guy died, the Chinese guy. Mm. I was in the back, his fight before he died. And then the, this uh, young Chinese fighter, I think he was 20 years old only, maybe 22 max. Mm. He uh, passed away when he was running, trying to cut weight. Mm. And um, uh, that's when they decided to introduce their hydration test. So what I really wanted to pick your, your brain on was the effects that martial arts whether it's grappling because wrestlers do it mm-hmm. it's it's sort of this thing that's all of a sudden become everywhere in combat sports that involve a weigh-in and it's really bizarre to me because we were talking earlier about how it's a zero-sum game because the weights are basically the same because the yeah. people that are the same weight as you are cutting down about yeah. the same amount of weight and um and such as sport that's so technique driven it's quite bizarre that this has become institutionalized and the thing that really shocks me more is there's almost this badge of respect people brag about it mm. this is the thing that i find a little weird about the wrestlers and the, yeah. the mma fighters is like their weight cutting stories are almost like war stories right people love to affectionately tell you i cut this amount of weight doing this and mm. it's this trendy thing that people like to do is talk about oh, I cut all this it was crazy and mm. and i think that's sort of a, a toxic problem that comes with this weight cutting culture too but, um, yeah, what's your take on weight cutting in general? And then, like, what's yeah. the damage that, that you get when you're fighting on maximum 24 hours mm. recovered from a pretty brutal weight cut? People can lose f- seven kilos of water, in, yeah. you know. Mm. Well, I think, like I said before, you know, I, I can't really comment on any specific policies, mainly because I'm really not involved in that sort of particular department. So I tend to cover more ringside um, and I don't really get involved in that sort of hydration process, and, and then those sort of decisions are well above my pay grade. But I think that um, f- basically having it, it's it's sort of safer for people to fight at their sort of natural mm. weight, you know. And um, if you can fight at your natural weight and you're well hydrated, then I think that you will have a it'll be a, a much more exciting competition if you fight at your full potential rather than fighting at, you know, 60 or 70% of your potential example. I think that, yes, there have been case reports from all around the world um, in pretty much every sort of uh, uh, where people unfortunately suffer adverse effects from dehydration. I would argue that's the largest cause of death Mm. from martial arts is weight cutting, not the actual strikes Mm. absorbed in the ring and a lot of the times those people that do pass away during a fight Mm. were severely dehydrated and had horrible weight cuts Mm. exactly well and in terms of 
the research that's out there, you know, basically, you know, I think you mentioned that we're going to talk a little bit about hydration. So I went out and did some research in the literature about, you know, what about sort of hydration and kind of combat sports. And it's like, as you said, it's very prevalent. You know, I think in in surveys, people say it's like 80%, probably even higher of people try and do some sort of weight cut using a variety of methods. And it's been known to... It's it's definitely proven through research to have an adverse effect on on all sorts of areas, including endurance and strength. Um, what about ability your ability to take a shot, for example? Well, I mean, it's it's difficult because I don't think all these things are very difficult to measure empirically. Yeah, you know, sure. yeah. you know, you can't really line take ten people, you know, take yeah. forty people, make them dehydrated, and then and whack them and say, okay, how did that feel? And compare to the people <laughs> yeah. who are hydrated. So, And no one even really knows what a chin is, right? That yeah. concept of how much yeah, punishment so someone can absorb, there's really no standard for that. Yeah, so I would say that, you know, you can, if you measure the, the kind of blood or, uh, sorry, measure the urine sort of, um, the, you know, the specific uh, density of urine or, you know, osmolality of the urine, then you can have a judgment to say how perhaps how how dehydrated or hydrated they are um but you know it, like we said if everybody is doing it then why then why does everybody do it because mm. it can only lead to you know impaired performance and it's it's almost like the people who are able to uh, lose water and then recover it quickly are the ones that are going to benefit which is not really a combat it's it's a skill but is it really a combat skill you know it's a competition skill yeah so is that really martial arts i'm not really sure about that but i would say is that again the american ringside physicians also have a consensus statement on hydration mm. they do realize it's a problem they there's and what they say is that you know the weigh-in should actually take place as soon as you know, as close to the fight as possible, really, within 24 hours or even the day of the, the weigh-in so that people don't have this sort of, you know, l kind of l massive loss of water and then think they have sufficient time to, to make up for it. Mm -hmm. So they, what you're trying to do is make people lose weight in the natural sense, you know, through loss of fat rather than loss of water. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I mean, you know, I think we've all... You know, in sort of in amateur fights in Singapore, when I was first starting out, it was pretty shocking. You see someone who's obviously cut weight rapidly, and they basically find they had the trainer has to sort of walk them to the ring because they're yeah. finding it hard to stand up. I mean, that's that's no way to you know that fight should should be stopped really. Right so, there, yeah. yeah. And that's one of those things where I'm so glad that I do work for an organisation which, like one, which puts his athlete safety first and has some of the most robust safety processes in the industry, if not worldwide, to make sure that athletes are within weight and hydrated. Yeah, well said. Yeah. What, what about, uh, what, what would you recommend through the rehydration process? Or would you, water, because you know they do the, um, some people tell you to do the Himalayan salt, some people tell you the electrolytes, I've mm. heard, uh, what's, the, what's the Pedialyte? That's a, there's all these uh, sort of myths about yeah. the best way to rehydrate. Mm. Uh, what's your take on all of that? Yeah, well, like I said, I don't. Um, I'm more of a orthopedic surgeon, uh, and so sure. I deal with <coughs> musculoskeletal injuries, you know, torn ligaments, broken bones, and I fix those. Um, and I basically get people in and out of the ring as, as safely and as quick as possible. The other areas of of that particular sports medicine, because it's sort of 
um, I'm not directly involved in that. I don't really want to comment on what sure. is the best best way of of rehydrating, and and, and that, I'm not sure which particular context that refers to, i.e. Before a bout, or just in general after? Yeah, just in up. general. Like, what, what, do you, what about electrolytes? Something like electrolytes is that? You know, I just wonder if uh, you know. I've even heard. Actually, there was a, a doc. The time that I told you that I had the the mm. Rebdo when yeah. I was, when I had the brown urine. Yeah. Uh, one of the guys that used to train here was a doctor as well. Yeah. He was an oncologist, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. But you know, he was one of those guys that would tell you after the end of a hard training session to drink sugar. He's like, right. drink sugar, drink hundred plus, drink a coke. Like you need some, you need some irons and you need some this and you need mm. some that. And I was like, and then I've heard that you shouldn't rehydrate with just water, regular water because you want, you need mm. electrolytes. And, yeah. and I have no idea about any of that. <laughs> it's just all. I think um, when someone comes to me with potential rhabdomyolysis, the first thing I do is basically, you know, run a basic blood, blood panel to assess their kidney function. Mm. And I think it's, you know, and I do a panel of other tests as well. And it's usually fairly rare that they are sort of depleted in certain sort of like their potassium is low or their sodium is low. Um, but generally, and you know, but if if they are, you know, if they've their, ki their kidneys are failing, then basically they need to come to hospital and need to be sort of intensely kind of monitored in ICU, and that's sort of a different field of specialty completely, yeah. rather than just taking kind of electrolytes. I think um, whatever you do, you know, it's going to take time to rehydrate, and probably through your normal diet, you're going to get, you know, as long as you're not. You don't have an extreme diet or avoid certain sort of, you know, minerals and vitamins. Then most people will recover naturally um, within t with given enough time. I can't really comment on the process of rehydrating rapidly before a fight because because basically I don't think that should happen. Yeah, and you you're should right just dehydrate naturally. Mm. I mean, you should um, lose weight naturally and not sort of and and stay rehyd stay hydrated during the whole process. Yeah. So the question then is, when you compete, <laughs> how much weight are you going to lose? Well, I've, like I said, um, <laughs> I've, lo I've lost about five kilos through just, you know, dieting and not drinking alcohol and eating eggs and pears. And I think I lost about five kilos in about sort of three, three or four weeks was quite shocking, really. What's your weight now? If you uh, don't mind me asking. I'm, I'm, 81, ki I'm 81 kilos. 81. I, I'm, that's probably, I'm probably like three or four kilos heavier than I should. 76 uh, maybe? Like to, yeah, I like to be 77, 78, basically. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not, with the weight categories, it's like either I go under 76 or I'm under 82, and it's much easier for me to be under 82 yeah. with the key, yeah. Well, that's, man. Yeah, okay. Dr. Alan Chung, I appreciate okay, it, man. No this problem. has been awesome. Thanks very much, Luke. It's Podcast awesome. or a trip, right? Okay, yeah, yeah, it was I, fun. I yeah. really appreciate you doing this, yeah, man. Yeah, no, thanks for the invite. Absolutely. Guys, this is the Stronghold Podcast episode 13. Dr. Alan Chung, you can, do you have a Instagram or anything that you want to shout out? Anything um, just, uh, to yeah. plug? <laughs> um, any injuries, please come to my clinic, International Orthopedic Clinic in Mount Navina Hospital. And uh, stay safe and train well. Take care. All right, everybody. Thank you. Dr. Alan Chung. Okay. Thanks a lot.